welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. On March 26th, Purdue Pharma agreed to a $270 million opioid settlement with the state of Oklahoma. The drug maker agreed to the settlement that'll fund a national addiction research and treatment center in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Attorney General, Mike Hunter, had originally sought $20 billion in damages. This is the first case to settle of more than 1,600 against Purdue Pharma. The settlement came just a day after the Oklahoma Supreme Court denied Purdue Pharma's request to delay the trial from its May 28th start date, and the judge ruled the trial could be televised. Joining me to comment on the impact of the Purdue Pharma settlement in Oklahoma on the more than 1,600 other MDL cases is Case Western Reserve University School of Law professor Andrew Paulus. As we begin, I ask Andrew to give his analysis of why Oklahoma settled with Purdue Pharma for $270 million. In order to do that, I have to get back to an issue that uh, has been sort of brewing around for a while, and that is the possibility that Purdue Pharma, who by all accounts is the the biggest target of all of the plaintiffs uh, in their various suits, at least against manufacturers, that Purdue Pharma was contemplating filing for bankruptcy protection. And when I first heard about the Oklahoma settlement, my initial thought was, well, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like the behavior of somebody who's looking to file for bankruptcy. And the reason that I thought that was that generally when you file for bankruptcy, all of your debts are discharged and you know you do have to, to use your assets uh, to the extent you have them to satisfy your creditors. But it didn't seem consistent with a bankruptcy plan that they would be settling with one individual creditor in the face of, as you say, you know, more than 1,600 others. Um, obviously, the, the one thing that distinguished Oklahoma from the other plaintiff's cases is that it has the first scheduled trial date at the end of May. And so that uh, clearly explains some aspect of it, but it doesn't explain the choice to settle uh, versus the choice to file for bankruptcy. And in particular, if you look at the coverage of the Oklahoma settlement, the Oklahoma Attorney General suggested that it had received assurances that Purdue would not file for bankruptcy, and that even if it did, that their interest uh, was protected by some form of security, and we don't know what that is, that Purdue Pharma has given to the state of Oklahoma that would uh, secure its claim even in the event of a bankruptcy. And that would mean that uh, Oklahoma would stand in front of all of the other creditors in line for some form of compensation out of the bankruptcy estate. So the fact that the, the settlement occurred so close to trial, that generally happens, but in the face of this bankruptcy discussion did not make sense. And then I thought, okay, Maybe what's going on here is some longer-term strategy on the part of the owners of Purdue Pharma uh, that is designed to uh, 
protect the incomes that they have received from Purdue, the, the, the distributions that they've taken. And the reason that I, I, that, that thought came to my head was that under the bankruptcy code, whenever somebody makes a payment to a creditor in favor of one creditor, but potentially to the detriment of others, that's called a preference. And a preference can be clawed back by the bankruptcy court if it happened within the 90-day period that precedes the bankruptcy filing. But when the recipient of the, the bankrupt debtor's money is what's called an insider, and in this case, certainly the Sackler family that owns the company would be deemed insiders, then the clawback period is not 90 days. It's actually one full year. So if, in fact, Purdue is being strategic and thoughtful about the way it's approaching its potential bankruptcy, then it will wait a full year from the time of the last significant distribution to the Sackler family before it files its own bankruptcy petition. And with that in mind, it may have been perhaps impossible for Purdue to avoid the Oklahoma May trial because if they had filed for bankruptcy in time to avoid that trial, then they also might have been within the one-year look-back period for any um, insider preferences. So that kind of is the best theory that I've come up with for why they did settle with Oklahoma and only Oklahoma. Uh, but then it does raise uh, another important question, which is, well, what then are the other creditors to do with this? Um, does this mean that Purdue is on a path of trying to make uh, you know, good settlements with everybody? And my answer to that is that doesn't seem like they can, given the the fact that they isolated one particular case and only because it was scheduled for trial. More likely, what it suggests to me is that they're waiting out this period and they will do what they can to avoid bankruptcy until that full year passes. But what they may not necessarily anticipate is that under the bankruptcy code, even if you as the debtor try to avoid bankruptcy or try to drag it out long enough to avoid the automatic provisions of the preference provisions, um, three of your creditors can join together and put you in bankruptcy against your will. It's called an involuntary bankruptcy petition. So all it would take would be three of the other plaintiffs in the opioid cases besides Oklahoma for three of the others to join forces to put Purdue into bankruptcy. And if they do so before the expiration of the 90-day look-back period that applies to Oklahoma, then the Oklahoma settlement becomes an undone settlement and everything then gets sucked into the bankruptcy court where the already thorny and multi-layered process becomes even more thorny and more multi-layered because you add the bankruptcy statutes um, into the mix and also then you become uh, the, the parties before a judge who has presumably very little understanding of this case because it would no longer be Judge Polster. So, and the family is swept into this as well. Purdue Pharma and the family by via via their distributions, provided there were distributions over the course of that year. Of course, if you read, you know, what uh, in some of the reports that have come out lately, they say that they quit giving distributions as of 2017. Well, that may or may not be true. And even if it is true, there may be some other forms of payments that are not characterized as distributions that are going to insiders. So uh, we just don't know. So here's something else that I found really interesting. And, and again, I'm sure you can probably shed some light on this. So $75 million of the settlement will be paid by the Sackler family who weren't named defendants in the case. 
and it's going to be used, of course, to fund that National Center for Addiction Studies and Treatment to be housed at the uh, Oklahoma State University. So that, that just sounds like the Sackler family bought their way out of trouble. Is, is that the case or maybe not? What do you think? Well, it's certainly not the case uh, with respect to any of the other plaintiffs. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a logical and understandable step that somebody who's kind of uh, sitting behind uh, a corporate entity that is responsible for so much alleged misconduct and damage is going to want to try to improve the, you know, their stature and their name, uh, especially given the recent reports that the charitable foundations that previously have enjoyed contributions from that family have decided no longer to accept them. So uh, to the extent they have philanthropy goals, this is an alternative way of exercising them that addresses the crisis that they and their company are alleged to have precipitated. And, uh, you know, no university is likely to turn down that kind of money when it's offered. But if it it does not bind any of the other uh, plaintiffs, any of the other states or any of the other county or city governments. So in that respect, you know, it's a, a gesture of, uh, goodwill, or if you're, you know, more jaundiced about these things, it's a gesture to make it look like you're behaving like a good corporate citizen or a good uh, wealthy citizen. But it doesn't really have any long-term impact. It certainly isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card for them. So, all in all, while most people, I think, were talking about this as being kind of the model for settlement for these other cases going forward, you are not necessarily looking at it that way. No, uh, and I think the model for settlement theory is a difficult one to imagine how it would actually be put into practice if the thing that is triggering settlements is the proximity of trial. Uh, There does not appear to be uh, a desire to actually make good on alleged damages, but rather a desire to avoid what would certainly have been a very damaging, embarrassing public trial where all the dirty laundry would come out. Uh, my guess is that they will continue to be willing to pay a premium to avoid the dirty laundry coming out, uh, but the pressure that the other plaintiffs have to bring to bear on them in that regard is nowhere near what Oklahoma's was, because at this point, you know, there are a, a smattering of other trials that are potentially going to happen before the October trial date that Judge Polster has scheduled in a couple of the cases that are consolidated into the MDL. So what happens between now and October remains anybody's guess, and it's possible, depending on what the ultimate bankruptcy plan is for Purdue, it's possible that we will see some more one-off settlements of this nature, but I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to see the magnitude of settlement that one would uh, hope for using this one settlement as a measure for the aggregate. So they settled a day after the judge denied Uh, delaying the trial. And also, incidentally, uh, it was just after the judge uh, said, yes, this trial will in fact be televised. How big of an issue is televising the trial and how big of a threat really was that? It's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. Um, If you think of it, the, the general public perception, and I haven't seen any statistics on this, any kind of polling, so I'm, I'm merely guessing, but my guess is that the opioid manufacturing industry and the opioid distribution industry uh, would enjoy a very low favorability ratings by the general public. Well, that's based on the amount of news coverage and uh, the, the information that's been 
publicized as it stands today. Imagine exponentially worse evidence coming out in a televised trial that would garner much more media attention because I'm sorry, media attention because it would not just be the long-standing, long-running opioid crisis, but now we would actually have a newsworthy news event that would draw more attention to it. And within that story, you would have all of this information coming out. That would be devastating for the uh, the manufacturers and distributors. Presumably, Purdue would be uh, the most devastated by all of that evidence because it's the biggest and allegedly most notorious player. And so uh, you would have, at that point, uh, you would create a situation, A, where there would be tremendous amounts of political pressure on uh, Congress and state legislatures to do something more than, than they've done. But B, it would then become very difficult to begin any other trial in any of these other cases and find a jury veneer that was um, uh, cushioned enough from all of this news coverage to actually be able to go into it not having heard all of these devastating facts. So now that that's known... How does that play out moving forward as far as the MDL is concerned? So let's just suppose they don't settle. And we, uh, a couple of these, I think we've got three bellwether cases, don't we, in Cuyahoga County? Those go to trial. Yeah, I believe that um, the cases in question, yeah, I, I, my, my, my memory is a little sketchy. I thought originally there were supposed to be three and that one of them ended up not going forward as a bellwether. But in any event, it's two or three cases that are currently scheduled for trial in front of Judge Polster in October. How will Judge Polster um, be influenced or not based upon what the judge in Oklahoma, what he did? Uh, Well, I don't see, you're not going to see cameras in a federal courtroom. That's just not something that's ever done. Uh, You'll certainly see reporters and, you know, maybe sketch artists the way you do for Supreme Court arguments if there's enough interest in in the case, but they don't permit uh, cameras in the courtroom. And so the that also might have been part of Purdue's thinking is let's get rid of the, the case where there are going to be cameras because we don't have to worry about that so much in Cleveland. Although, you know, if they're worried about cameras in the courtroom only, then that's fine. But if they're also worried about the media accounts of the evidence that comes out in the courtroom, then, you know, they, they still have the same concerns, although maybe, you know, to a, a somewhat lesser degree. Um, yeah, it's not quite a, a prime time special then. Exactly. Uh, but... It would not surprise me if we see Purdue settle in advance of the October trial or file for bankruptcy protection if my theory is correct and the, you know, the timing is right for them on that. Um, there's also some uncertainty at this point about whether that trial can in fact go forward as scheduled considering that one of the defendants in that trial has now just lost its, uh, its counsel and that would generally be a reasonable basis for any party to any lawsuit to ask for more time. So the remaining defendants in the Oklahoma case are uh, Johnson & Johnson and Teva Pharmaceuticals. The uh, Attorney General, Hunter, announced last week that he would continue to bring public nuisance claims against those remaining defendants, but he would drop five other claims against them, including violation of the Oklahoma Medicaid False Claims Act. Why would he drop those charges against the others now, Andrew? Uh I can only speculate as to the answer to that, uh, but my speculation is that the size of the settlement that he got from Purdue gives him a lot of cushion, and it works in two ways. In one way, it takes a lot of the 
pressure off of the state of Oklahoma to recover the same damages uh, from uh, Medicaid expenditures and so forth because it has been uh, or expects to be compensated you know, fairly handsomely for that. So they are less important to pursue. The other uh, issue is that there is probably uh, a distaste for taking this case to trial unless the trial itself is going to serve some sort of favorable political end to the attorney general. And I don't say that uh, to castigate the attorney general of Oklahoma, but it's just basically human nature that we, we pursue these things in ways that are most useful to us. And it seems to me that by simplifying the trial and using the resources that they have to, to zero in on those nuisance claims is a way of, uh, of making it a simpler trial, making it a less expensive trial to prepare for, and still getting the splash that he's looking for in the news headlines. Help put into perspective public news that claim, because quite frankly, it sounds like jaywalking. <laughs> well, that's an interesting analogy. Uh, public nuisance is, is a very amorphous standard. Uh, it's one of those things that you kind of know it when you see it, and it's very difficult to put uh, meaningful boundaries around it. It's different from private nuisance in the sense that you're not doing something to your neighbor and you know it's only you as a private citizen doing it to only that neighbor as a private citizen, but rather it's something that is creating you know the, the, the same kind of public health uh, uh, injury that we tend to associate with things that we characterize as public health, health crises. Uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it was not a successful strategy for some of the other kinds of big litigations that we saw. In particular, here in Cleveland, we had a lot of litigation over whether the banks had some responsibility for the public nuisance they created with the foreclosure crisis and the uh, the resulting blight on several Cleveland neighborhoods. Um, so in terms of its value, I think there's a lot of political value for the attorney general. There's also some risk that if it doesn't succeed, then it will have been you know, not very well spent money. And I think um, part of his calculus must be, we just got this big pot of money from Purdue. Let's make sure that a large substantial amount of that ends up going where it needs to and not being uh, uh, used simply to pursue additional monetary judgments against other parties. So this case was brought as a civil action. Did they have cause for criminal action, which would have more teeth, wouldn't it? Uh, it would have more teeth, but it would not have necessarily the same uh, public outcry in the sense that the attorney general in this case, by representing the state of Oklahoma in a civil case, really is able to sell this as I am representing each of my constituents, because we are all parties to this. This is sort of the parents' patriae function of the state to recover money on behalf of its citizens when money has been wrongfully uh, taken or damages caused, uh, as opposed to an ordinary criminal proceeding, which, among other things, um, I, I can't comment on whether or not there would have been a basis for a criminal prosecution in Oklahoma, because that would be a function of Oklahoma criminal, criminal law that I'm not familiar with. Let's move along. The, uh, on March 20th, 2019, Judge Polster disqualified former U.S. Attorney Carol Rendon and Baker and Hostetter, the firm that uh, she now works for. He disqualified them from representing Endo, and that's the makers of Percocet and um, Opana in the MDL. How significant is that ruling? And kind of give us the background on that. And, uh, you know, probably most importantly, is it going to deter others from switching sides in the future? 
That's a great question. So the, the nature of the ruling, it's a very narrow ruling that applies very narrowly to uh, Ms. Rendon and her firm. And it also applies very narrowly just to the cases in which uh, the information that led to this disqualification is pertinent. That is, uh, I believe it's Cuyahoga County in the city of Cleveland. And the reason she's disqualified is that she, uh, during her time as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio, it was privy to information that was provided confidentially by the County of Cuyahoga and the City of Cleveland as part of a task force designed at the Department of Justice to deal with the opioid crisis. And so uh, Judge Polster's holding is that um, not to suggest anything uh, inappropriate about Ms. Rendon herself or her stature or caricature or, or expertise as a lawyer or professionalism or, or character for practicing law, but that in this case, she had come to learn information in the course of her work for the U.S. Attorney's Office that would not have been available to her in, because it wasn't publicly known, and that is confidential information that's proprietary or sensitive to the plaintiffs, whom she's now opposing in uh, the same sort of context, which is the, the opioid cases. So the ruling simply says that because of the uh, the fact that she learned this and because it could be prejudicial to the plaintiffs in, in the Cleveland and Cuyahoga County cases to uh, have to go up against an adversary who has this sort of insider information that she cannot uh, represent those uh, her client endo in those cases, nor can her firm, which because of her continuing work with them uh, since her time on this case, they are essentially tainted and it's too late to unring the bell and uh, and not have them be uh, affected by the information that she may have shared with them that she obtained in that other way. So it, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, ramifications to this that we need to worry about in terms of former government lawyers switching sides. Uh, it's only when you have information from a particular party and then are using or in a position to use that information against that party in subsequent litigation. So the, the ruling is very clear to specify that she's not disqualified from participating in any other MDL lawsuit that doesn't involve these parties, and that uh, it's nothing untoward or improper that she herself did. But it is a fact that she was privy to this information and should not be in a position where it could be used to the detriment of the parties that originally provided it to her. But it seems as though... Over the course of the opioid epidemic, we've got example after example of someone who worked in the public sector going to the private sector and working directly in that industry that they were associated with. Uh, we've seen that with congressmen. We've seen that with uh, lawyers that are in agencies, the FDA in particular. Um, so it would seem that this was an opportunity to maybe um, not necessarily put a halt to that, but set a precedent in place where that would be questioned or cause some to pause prior to doing that and prior to jumping to the other side. And that doesn't appear to be the case. It does not, although uh, it does give the plaintiffs an opening to scrutinize the degree to which any other individuals who may have switched sides, as Ms. Rendon did, uh, it's not really even switching sides. Right. It's, it's a task force. Yeah. Yes. But putting that aside for just a moment, it does give an opening for plaintiffs to uh, scrutinize the types of information that anyone coming from a government position might have been privy to. And if any particular plaintiff can make a showing that their information 
was accessible to a lawyer who you know once had a government position and that same lawyer is now representing an adversary in the very context in which the information in question was originally given over then yeah there could be others who uh, who suffer the same fate uh, but I don't expect that there's going to be a whole lot of litigation over this. I, I will say this, and I don't know whether this is one of your forthcoming questions, but just today, Judge Polster uh, denied a motion for reconsideration of this decision and also denied the, uh, the law firm an opportunity to take an immediate appeal of it to the Sixth Circuit. So he's essentially prevented any meaningful review of this decision at this juncture. And it pretty much forecloses the possibility of Baker and Hostetler representing Endo at the Bellwether trial. As you can imagine, that's a significant hit financially for Baker and Hostetler, possibly. And it's also a, a, a step back for Endo in terms of its representation. I wouldn't be surprised to see Endo at this point move to postpone that Bellwether trial because here we are, you know, six months or so out from that trial, and it is now in a position of needing new counsel. So somebody having to get up to speed for a case like this in only six months might be a lot to ask. And I, I would imagine that Judge Polster is going to struggle very diff, uh, have a very difficult struggle deciding whether or not to postpone this trial. It's already been postponed at least once, and I'm sure that um, he wants that trial date hanging out there, especially after the Oklahoma settlement, because if there's any prayer that a case is going to settle, that will happen. Uh, only if it's uh, very close to trial or after trial when, when everybody can see what the, the original trial result is. The Daubert standard is the set of criteria used to determine the admissibility of expert witness testimony in federal court. Under the Daubert standard, the trial judge serves as the gatekeeper who determines whether an expert's evidence is deemed reputable and relevant. On July 16th, Judge Polster is scheduled to hear arguments from the prosecution and defense and determine the admissibility of their experts. As we conclude our discussion with Andrew, he comments on that upcoming July hearing. First of all, if it's public, then there might be um, incentives to settle before the hearing, not just before the trial, depending on the degree of the information that's going to come out in that hearing. And that might be one reason why it isn't public. Um, but uh, it's I actually think one of the most interesting aspects of that uh, that I'm looking forward to seeing is the damages experts, because that's where the, the, the really rubber meets the road. I mean, we can all probably, any of us could probably, you know, understand easily and get a handle on the liability questions and the facts of the behavior and all of that. Those are not going to be easy to prove, but they're fairly straightforward. But the damages is really going to be difficult for the plaintiffs. I'm very, very curious about how it's going to work. The other thing that Judge Polster is doing um, in the same time frame as this Daubert stuff is he's ruling on the summary judgment motions that are going to be filed. And those summary judgment motions are presumably going to be filled with factual information also. That's why they're probably going to be filed under seal and not accessible to the public. But he has got a lot of work on his plate coming up. I mean, he's, he's, I don't know how he's doing this. I just don't understand how it's possible for one judge. I know he's got magistrates who are helping him and special masters and law clerks, but I mean, the poor guy, he's got a full docket of cases on top of this, and this is more than any of that, than all of that combined. This concludes our discussion with Case Western Reserve University School of Law Professor Andrew Paulus 
on the Purdue Pharma settlement in Oklahoma and developments in the multi-district litigation. Please join us each week for a new podcast release and this summer for continuing coverage of the multi-district litigation from Cleveland, Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.